0: I' invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to First Timothy, First Timothy chapter one, and we'll be in verses 1 through 11 today. First Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. If you need a Bible, uh, there are some back pew Bibles either in front of you or maybe under your seat in the pews. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now, we know that the law is good, if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. For those who strike their fathers and mothers for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. The decline in church attendance in the U.S. was once again highlighted in a Gallup poll whose findings were released last month. This latest poll found that only 31% of Americans regularly attend a religious service today. And while 67% of those surveyed grew up regularly attending services as children, only 38% of them still do today. This trend is not surprising at all given the direction our culture has been moving, but this decline in church attendance has caused many to question the way the church should be done. The headline of an NPR article from December 13th of last year reads, As attendance dips, churches change to stay relevant for a new wave of worshiper. In this article, several new ways of doing church were highlighted. A pastor named Chris Brittle was interviewed. He walked away from three decades of leading Black Baptist churches and began Battlefield Farm and Gardens in Tennessee. They grow vegetables to sell at a local farmer's market. They also distribute food to people in public housing. And he has a church. But instead of a traditional space, his new church gathers around a fire pit at a community garden each week. And one of the attendees said, I want time to sit down, like we do on Sundays sometimes, or around the fire, and like pray and and recenter and figure out what we're about in the world because the world is very noisy. And then I want a church to get expletive done with your community and for your community. At another church, the Episcopal Church of the Ascension in Knoxville, they've started non-traditional programs. And, and one of them is something they do on Sunday evenings called Breathing Under Stained Glass. About 30 people sit on yoga mats in the sanctuary of the church, surrounded by candles, stained glass, as the associate rector, says things like, your human breath is infinitely connecting to the divine breath, so that as you breathe, you are being breathed by the holy. There are so many different ways that people are trying to do church today. And even if we take out the more novel and extreme versions, which eschew the traditional forms of church altogether, there still exists so much variety in the Western church. There's so much variety in what churches teach and how they are organized and how they conduct their ministry. Some churches have long statements of faith, while others have short bullet points of priorities. Some churches have begun affirming all types of lifestyles. Some churches have a mega mindset, while others gather in homes. Some churches are multi-site or perhaps online only. Some churches are led by female pastors, while others reserve leadership for men. Some churches strongly emphasize social programs. Other churches emphasize giving and prosperity. Some churches have adopted all the best practices of the modern entertainment business, while others only sing songs a cappella. In this profusion of church practices, we are all forced to ask, what should church be like? How should we think about the church? Are are new ways of doing church needed? Isn't it at least partly our responsibility as Christians to help people re-engage at church with the message of the gospel? How should we organize and structure a church in 21st century America? Those are questions that all of you should be concerned about. You are part of the 31% who attend church regularly here in our country. That means you're in the minority. And if you do not have a firm grasp of what the church is and how the church should function and why it should function in that way, you run the risk of becoming one of the statistics, one of those who no longer see the importance of Or necessity or relevance of regularly attending a traditional church service. But as Christians, the local church is such a big part of our lives. We are saved not just as individuals, but we are saved to be part of the church, God's people. The the church is where we gather to worship and to love and to to care and to bear the burdens of other believers. It is a place where we find spiritual nourishment and encouragement. It is our spiritual family. It is a community that is meant to teach and, and model the deep and profound love of Christ in this world. And so we need to have a proper understanding of what the church should believe and teach and, and how it should be organized and what it should be about. And that understanding cannot come from our cultural tastes Or our personal preferences. That understanding must be shaped and guided and formed and and developed by the Word of God. For the church is God's church. It is the only institution on this earth that Jesus promised to build. And God has not left us without a roadmap for this crucial institution. He has not left us to our own devices. He has clearly communicated to us in his word what he wants the church to be about and how it should behave. And many of his instructions for the church are found in the book of 1 Timothy. While 1 Timothy isn't a comprehensive manual on the church, it's probably the closest thing we have to that in Scripture. It's a book that touches upon so many relevant topics for us today as we think about church. It addresses the beliefs of the church and its organization. It discusses the roles of men and women in the church. It touches upon how the worship of the church should be conducted and and what the leaders of the church should be like. It provides instruction regarding the social responsibilities of the church. It deals with how those in the church should think about wealth. And as our church, Redeemer Bible Fellowship, has, has changed and grown over the years, Especially with so many new faces in the last few years, as your shepherds, we feel that it's important for us to spend some time this year to hear from God through the Apostle Paul about the church. We need to be on the same page concerning what the church should be about and how it should function and what it should emphasize. And that's what this letter is all about. Now, I want you to turn with me just for a moment to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy 3, and I want you to look at verses thirteen and 14, or 14 and 15. 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. In these verses, Paul tells us in clear terms why he wrote this letter. He said to Timothy, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay... You may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. 1 Timothy is a book about how to behave in the household of God. It's a book about the church of the living God, which is meant to be a pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, we're going to get into that later more later on, but... But these two verses should help us to see that 1 Timothy is a book about the church and how the church needs to guard the truth of God. And that's what we find Paul discussing in the beginning of this letter as we start this new series in this book this morning. In the first 11 verses of chapter 1, we are taught that as a church, we must guard the gospel. We must protect God's truth. That means dealing with false teachers, but it also means upholding the goodness of God's word in our lives. At the very outset of this letter, we find how important it is for the church to guard and live out the truth of the gospel. And I want us to take in these verses in three movements. First, I want you to notice the authority of this letter in verses 1 to 2. And then we'll consider the urgency of gospel defense in verses 3 to 7. and Finally, we'll look at the goodness of God's law in verses 8 through 11. Okay, the authority of this letter, the urgency of gospel defense, and the goodness of God's law. Combined together, these three movements should, should really compel us to guard the truth of God's word. First, let's look at the first couple of verses and notice the authority of this letter. In verse 1, Paul identifies himself as the author. Most Christians are familiar with Paul, at least to some extent. He was a devout Jew from the city of Tarsus in modern-day Turkey. He wasn't impressive physically, but he was a man of great spiritual vigor. As a Jew, he was exemplary. He described himself in Philippians 3.5 as circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee. He was a Jew of Jews. He was zealous for his religion, and that manifested itself in his early opposition to Christianity. He became a ruthless persecutor of Christians, but one day on his, on his way to Damascus, Jesus appeared to him. And he was dramatically saved and commissioned by the Lord. And from that point on, his zeal was transferred from his Jewish religion to Jesus Christ. And though the early church was initially hesitant to accept him, he eventually gained their trust and became a a, a tremendous pastor and missionary to many. Now, notably here in verse 1, Paul writes that he was an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now, an apostle means one who is sent. And Paul, like the 12 disciples, was commissioned by Jesus Christ himself. In the New Testament, we do find some other men who are also called apostles. Barnabas, Apollos, Epaphroditus, and perhaps even Timothy and and Silas. These men were recognized by the church for their work and were sent out for the sake of the gospel. but, But those men were not commissioned in the same way Paul and the original disciples were. Paul had a special authority that came from Jesus. And he doubled down on this authority in the second half of verse 1. He writes that he was an apostle by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. In other words, he was obligated and authorized by God the source of our salvation and Christ Jesus who through his ministry is our hope. And it's interesting to note how strongly Paul begins this letter given the fact that he was writing to Timothy who would have certainly understood this. When my children are obedient and submitting to my authority, um, I don't say to them, my children, I am Daniel, your father, ordained by God as the head of our home and compelled to raise you in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, so go brush your teeth. I might say something along those veins when they aren't, along that vein, if they aren't listening to me, but it would be weird for me to play that card when they are. So why did Paul come out so strong here if he was writing to Timothy, whom he described as his true child in the faith? Well, the reason is because even though this letter was addressed to Timothy, it was meant for the whole church. In fact, in the very last verse of this letter, in chapter 6, Paul ends it with, grace be with you. And the you there is plural. So this is a letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, but with the intention of it benefiting the whole church. And, and this particular church was going through some difficulties, so Paul needed them to understand that what he was writing to them wasn't just his, his personal opinion or his wise advice. He needed them to understand that the instructions in this letter were authoritative words from God. And we need to approach 1 Timothy with this in mind. There are some statements in 1 Timothy that might grade against your modern sensibilities. There are statements about the role of women and the nature of sin and the need for discipline in the church and the way a church should be led that many today balk at. You might be even struggling with some of these statements if you are familiar with this book. But Paul wants you to remember that what has been written here isn't just a a series of helpful suggestions for the church, 1 Timothy is a letter written by a man who is commissioned by Jesus and commanded by God to instruct the church, to instruct you in the way that the church should go under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so we must come to this letter with a humble heart, ready to receive all that God wants us to understand about the church. Well, that said, let me say a few things about Timothy before moving on. Timothy came from the town of Lystra, which was also in Turkey. He was the son of a Jewish woman and a Greek man, and influenced by his godly mother and grandmother, he came to know the Lord at a young age. It's possible that he was converted as a boy under Paul's ministry when Paul visited Lystra on his first missionary journey But it wasn't until Paul's second missionary journey, when he visited Lystra, that he asked Timothy to join him in his ministry. And Timothy proved to be an ideal ministry partner for Paul. Sorry, I just can't see this collapse like this. (laughs) Thank you. All right, that's my OCD coming out. <laughs> so, Timothy was an ideal ministry partner for Paul, and he served with Paul for, for the rest of his life. Um, Timothy was a, a very willing servant, and as a young man, he willingly agreed to be circumcised so as not to be a stumbling block to Jews. He, he traveled all over with Paul, And though he struggled with some physical ailments and needed to be encouraged at times as a young man, Paul wrote to to the Philippians in chapter 2, verse 20 of that book, that he had no one like Timothy. Uh, Timothy is actually mentioned in all but three of Paul's letters in the New Testament. And so that's why Paul called him his true child in the faith. Timothy was a legit Christian, a young man who had proven his faithfulness over time. Now, Paul wanted Timothy to know that he loved him and recognized his faithfulness, but he also wanted others to know that as well. And after those brief words, Paul concluded his introduction with grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Paul wished Timothy and the church grace or God's continuing favor. He wished the mercy, which is freedom from misery, and peace, which is a soul that is in harmony with God. Grace, mercy, and peace is an appropriate greeting to any Christian because we are all continually in need of these things in our lives. But one quick thing to note about Paul's greeting here is his inclusion of mercy. Paul almost always writes grace and peace in his letters. But here he added mercy, probably because he knew Timothy's situation in Ephesus wasn't easy. And so we get a glimpse of Paul's pastoral heart. He wanted Timothy to be encouraged and and comforted in the midst of what he was dealing with. Now, what was he dealing with? Well, that's what we learn about next. And we move from the authority of this letter to the urgency of gospel defense. The urgency of gospel defense. We find Paul writing about this in verses 3 to 7. Paul gets right to the point in this letter. After his brief greeting, he doesn't spend time on additional pleasantries. Instead, he gets to the heart of why he was writing. And in verse 2, we learn that he wanted Timothy to charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. There were people teaching false doctrine in the church. Now, before we get into that, it's helpful to back up a bit and understand what was going on at this time. Paul writes that he was going to Macedonia in Europe, and while he was going there, he had urged Timothy to remain at Ephesus. Ephesus was a key city in Asia. We don't know exactly how the church in Ephesus started, but we do know from Acts 18 that Paul left a couple named Priscilla and Aquila there on his second missionary journey, and they were involved early on in shaping that church. They helped to disciple a gifted man there by the name of Apollos, who went on to be a great blessing and, a, and an apostle of the church in Corinth. Eventually, Paul made his way back to Ephesus, and he spent more than two years there in the early to mid-50s. And his ministry was, was highly impactful in that influential city. During that, that his time in Ephesus, Paul helped to lead so many to Christ That the idol economy tanked in that city, which was known for the famous Temple of Artemis. That's in Acts 19. So the church in Ephesus became a beloved and crucial part of the the gospel work that was going on in Asia. But Paul couldn't stay there forever. He felt called to move on, and when he was headed to Jerusalem, um, sensing that he might face trouble there, he called for the Ephesian elders, men he had likely discipled himself to come to him in Acts chapter 20. And you can read his whole speech to them on your own sometime, beginning in Acts 20, verse 18. But I just want to read a few verses from that speech to you. Paul said to these Ephesian elders, "'I know that after my departure, "'fierce wolves will come in among you, "'not sparing the flock. "'And from among your own selves "'will arise men speaking twisted things "'to draw away the disciples after them. "'Therefore be alert.'" Remembering that for three years I did not cease, night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. That passage in Acts chapter 20 shows us Paul's heart for the church in Ephesus. It was a place where he had spent a significant portion of his ministry. It was a people with whom he had shed tears. The church in Ephesus was full of believers close to his heart, but Paul warned them that in the days to come, fierce wolves would come to try to devour the flock, speaking twisted things. Because he cared about them so much, he warned them to be alert. Now, by the time 1 Timothy was written, several years had passed from Acts chapter 20. 1 Timothy, along with 2 Timothy and Titus, were likely written after the events of the book of Acts. Paul had gone to Jerusalem, as he had told the Ephesian elders, and he had been arrested and he had been sent to Rome. And at the very end of Acts, we learn that he was still under house arrest in Rome, but from the details in the rest of the New Testament and from the testimony of the early church fathers, it appears that Paul was released in the early 60s for a time. And eventually, he was imprisoned again in Rome under Emperor Nero later that decade, and that imprisonment was the one that likely led to his death. But during this in-between time, in-between in his two prison sentences, it's likely that Paul continued to travel and serve. And he probably went to places like Macedonia, mentioned here in First Timothy, and, and to Crete, as mentioned in Titus, and perhaps even to Spain, as he wrote to the Romans about. So 1 Timothy was likely written in the early to mid-60s. And that means that this was less than a decade after Paul had predicted to the Ephesian elders that fierce wolves would come. Well, we learn in 1 Timothy that his prediction had come true. And even though Paul had left Timothy in Ephesus to handle these wolves, the safety of his beloved flock was so critical that he wrote this letter to encourage Timothy in his work and inform the church of what still needed to happen. This is what was on the top of Paul's mind as he was writing to Timothy. Now, what were these men, these wolves, teaching? Paul doesn't give us a a ton of detail, but he does give us some of the rough contours. Later on in chapter 4, he mentions that they were forbidding people to marry and telling people not to eat certain foods. In verse 7 of chapter 1, he mentions that they wanted to be teachers of the law. And so the false teaching was probably Jewish in nature with some legalistic rules. But here in verse 4, Paul mentions that these teachers were focused on myths and genealogies. That means they were into fables, legends. They probably had an unhealthy obsession with the genealogies of the Old Testament. They probably concocted fanciful theories from those sections of the Bible. And the result, Paul writes in verse 4, is that it promoted speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. God's word had become a place for these men to go hunting for support of their own speculations. And in chapter 6, verse 4, Paul says that these men were puffed up with conceit, but they understood nothing. They were arrogant, and their teaching was full of empty ideas. And we see this kind of unhealthy speculation today in chat forums, forums, through books about hitting codes in the Bible, in some people's insistence on having a vision or seeing a sign from God. We see it even in large organized religion today. Mormonism, in the book of Mormon, would be a good example of this. That book is a modern collection of myths that promote speculation instead of the stewardship from God that is by faith. As Christians, we are to be stewards of God's plan of salvation. That means we must clearly and carefully communicate and protect the message of the gospel. That is our stewardship. But when we start to give our own theories or thoughts or impressions or ideas more weight than the revealed word of God, we enter the realm of speculation. and We run the risk of abandoning the stewardship that God has given to us as his people. That appears to be what these false teachers were doing. Paul wanted to know that it was an urgent matter to deal with this kind of influence in the church because it confuses people about the saving plan of God that comes through faith. You see, Paul's goal was one of building up others in love. He writes in verse 5 that the aim of our charge, which includes his charge to Timothy in verse 3 to guard the gospel, but probably also includes God's general charge for us to live the Christian life. The aim of our charge, he writes, is love. Love is the goal of Christian instruction. That's why Jesus said the two main commandments were to love God and to love your neighbor. When we understand the immense love of God for us with the sacrifice of Christ for our sins, it is only then that God's love can begin to work in and through us. This kind of love comes when one has a pure heart. And a good conscience and a sincere faith. A pure heart is one that has been cleansed through salvation. A good conscience refers to a conscience that is functioning effectively because it understands that the gospel proclaimed by the apostles is the foundation for our life. It's a conscience that has been informed and shaped by God's truth, not one that has been fed the unhealthy diet of this world. A sincere faith is an active belief in God that demonstrates itself in how we live. When someone has been cleansed by Christ, and when someone accepts the truth of God and lets that inform his or her conscience, and when someone lives out that truth, then that person understands the love of God, and his or her life will be full of God's love. That is the goal of Paul's teaching. It is the goal of Christian teaching in the church. The aim of our charge is love. But the false teachers in Ephesus were not like this at all. In verse 6, Paul writes Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion. These people had polluted hearts, faulty consciences, and fake faith. They desired to be teachers of the law, but they didn't understand the things they taught, so, or the things which they so confidently asserted. These teachers were characterized by impure motives a lack of true understanding and overconfidence. In many ways, they reflect the worst of the internet and social media today. Now that anyone has access to a platform, there is so much vain discussion out there because people do not have as their aim a desire to produce love. Instead, there is often just a desire to make one's voice and opinions heard. And it feels... Like the more confident or the louder one is, the more that person is heard. But Paul warned against these kinds of teachers and influencers. The loudest or the ones who generate the the most discussion or the ones who have the most followers are not necessarily the ones whom we need to be listening to. When arrogance and ignorance and influence are combined, that is a cocktail bomb Of trouble waiting to explode, especially in the church. The more a person likes to engage in argument over spiritual matters, the more likely they are to be spiritually unhealthy and immature. We need to have the discernment to hear and listen to those whose aim is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. How do we do that? We need to make sure that our preachers and teachers are those who are genuinely saved and actively live out the Christian faith. That's why it's important that you know us as pastors and elders, and and you even ask to see into our lives. And as preachers and teachers of God's Word, we, we need to be characterized by humility. We need to recognize that we too are sinners and confess our sin and go to Christ for cleansing so that we have pure hearts, we need to be saturating ourselves in, in God's Word and the great doctrines of Scripture more than we consume Netflix or, or YouTube or, or the latest cultural trends. Our consciences need to be properly informed. Our lives at home and in the church and in the community and in social gatherings need to reflect a, a genuine faith in the Lord. Those, Paul writes, are the marks of men who steward the truth of God faithfully out of love. Those who are missing those marks do not produce love through their teaching. Instead, they tend to generate speculation and vain discussion and confusion. They teach a different doctrine, turning people away from the grace, mercy, and peace that come from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Timothy was up against. So Paul told him that these false teachers needed to be stopped There is an urgency we should feel about defending the gospel in the church. You know, we expect the world to get the good news wrong. But the church should have it right. And the gospel needs to be defended by silencing those within the church who teach what is false. Now, having mentioned that these men in Ephesus desired to be teachers of the law in verse 7, Paul makes a related digression in the verses that follow. Even though these teachers were not teaching the law properly, Paul wanted to make sure that Timothy and the church at Ephesus understood that the law was still good. He wanted them to understand how the law was meant to function. And so we move from the urgency of gospel defense to the goodness of God's law. The goodness of God's law. And Paul, in verse 8, Paul writes, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Paul affirmed the goodness of the law, but It needed to be used in the right way. What are some of the ways that God's law is meant to be used today? Well, the reformers often view the law of God as having three main functions or roles. First, the law serves a, a political or civil purpose. It functions to restrain evil in this world by making it clear what is right and wrong and what the consequences are for wrong behavior. Second, the law serves a theological or spiritual purpose. It functions to, to, to show us the horrific nature of our sin and, and see, help us to understand our great need for God's grace and help us to run to the gospel for salvation. Third, the law serves as a guide for our lives. As Christians, we aren't under the law anymore, but the law still teaches us how to live. All three of these uses of the law are good, but how does Paul talk about the law in this letter to Timothy? Well, he writes in verse 9, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. What is Paul saying here? Well, certainly he implies that the law is meant to curb the lawless deeds of the wicked. That's the first rule of the law. It's not meant primarily for for law-abiding or just citizens. It's meant to restrain evil. That's partly why the law is good. But Paul also seems to be saying that the law of God was not meant for for those who think that they are righteous or just. And those who think this way will will never be saved. Jesus said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The law was not meant to be a tool that the self-righteous could point to and say, I've obeyed all that. Now I'm good. No, it was meant to to reveal how lawless and disobedient and ungodly and sinful and unholy and profane we all are in our natural state. Ironically, the law is a good thing because it shows you how bad you are. But if you desire to be a teacher of the law and you focus on the minutiae of the law, and you just tell people what they should and shouldn't do in regard to marriage and, and eating and any number of other topics, then you've missed the point. Because the law wasn't just meant for us to obey in detail so that we could check those things off and feel good about ourselves before God. The law was actually meant to show us our shortcomings and point us to someone else who could fulfill the law and save us from our sin. And only after finding that forgiveness and salvation in Christ can the law be, then be the helpful guide to living that it was also meant to be. In a sense, Paul was affirming all of these uses of the law that the reformers taught. And he goes on to provide a summary of how the law is for the lawless. It's for the ungodly and sinners. It's for the unholy and profane, those who disregard what is sacred. It's for those who strike their fathers and mothers. This is a reference to the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother. It's also for murderers, a reference to the sixth commandment. It's for the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality. This is a reference to the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. And note that Paul mentions both heterosexual and homosexual sin here. He is saying that any sexual activity outside of marriage is against God's law. And And though some have tried to explain away Paul's reference to homosexuality here today, there is no denying what Paul was referring to if you read this verse objectively. The Greek word used here is literally men betters, or betters of men. It's men who engage in sexual activity with other men. Paul also mentions enslavers. This is a reference to the Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal. Those who enslave or kidnap, steal the most valuable things on earth, people made in the image of God. Paul writes of liars and perjurers, which remind us of the ninth commandment. You shall not bear false witness. And then he concludes, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. You can include the tenth commandment to so not covet in that. The point that Paul is making here is that God's law as summarized in the Ten Commandments, is meant to show those who are lawless, those who are sinners, their sin. It's meant to show all of us that we are morally bankrupt. We are all condemned by the law. And God's law, since it shows us what is right and shows us our sin, is in verse 11 in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. The Old Testament law is not contrary to the gospel. The moral standards it teaches aligns with the moral standards of Christ. And even more, the law shows us our need for the gospel. It condemns us in order that the gospel might comfort and justify us. So Paul writes about the goodness of the law because he knew that false teachers in Ephesus were confusing people about it. Though we don't have all the details, it seems that in their pride they speculated about the law. And they made confident claims about how the Ephesians should live in order to please God through obedience to the law. The law became a means for the guilty to establish their righteousness by obeying God's commands. But this kind of teaching was confusing. It was misleading. Instead, they needed to rightly apply the law. They needed to teach people that the law was meant to restrain evil in this world in accordance with the good ethical standards of the gospel. And they needed to teach people that the law was meant to show them their sin in order to bring them to Christ and help them to find the means to truly live the life that the law of God guides us to live, a life of love. God's law is good. It restrains evil. It shows us of sin. It points us to the gospel. And it guides us in how we should live. But we've got to teach and use the law rightly. So we must guard how God's word, how his law is taught. As a church, we must guard the gospel. How can we practically do this? We can remember that doctrine matters. Having a solid theological foundation will keep us Falling prey from the speculations of others or even our own speculations. Reading theology, even early on the morning with the pastors, is important. Spending time with your family in the Word develops doctrinal convictions. Attending Sunday school is helpful. Listening to solid preaching is essential. Having a robust doctrinal foundation helps us to guard the gospel. We also need to be wary of our own tendency to have impure motives and embrace prideful speculations in the church. We have to guard ourselves from believing that what will really cause the church to survive and grow in this day and age are worldly practices or or something that we've learned from our personal experience or novel interpretations or ideas. We need to stay on the straight and narrow line of Scripture and be good stewards of God's truth rather than creative visionaries who insert our own truth. And finally, we must realize that a true understanding of doctrine should produce love. If we really understand the gospel, if we understand the great love of God that has come to sinners like us through Christ, we will live lives of love, and we will uphold the truth and the goodness of God's word through our lives. As a church, let's remember that we are called to guard the gospel for the sake of the glory of our blessed God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for giving us these precious words that Paul penned to Timothy for the benefit of the church in Ephesus and for all churches that would come after it. Father, we thank you that you have not left us to our own thoughts or ideas or novel interpretations. We thank you that you have given us a a manual, a a guidebook for how uh, we should behave in your household. Father, this is your church. This is not just our church. This is your church. And and we want to to do church right. We want to be the church that you have called us to be and commanded us to be in your word. And so help us to be a church that is all about guarding the truth of the gospel. Help us to be a pillar and buttress of the truth. And help us in this series to really humble ourselves before your word so that, so that we might be convicted about how the church should function in this day. We pray these things in the name of Christ Jesus, our Savior and Lord. Amen. Let me just close our service with some words that we read earlier from the opening verses of 1st Timothy. But let me address them all to you. To Redeemer, those who are true children in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. And all God's people said, amen. Please be seated for a short time of silence before you are dismissed. Um, When you hear the music play, we encourage you to stick around for some coffee and refreshments. We have Sunday school today at 11, as well as our evening service beginning at 5.30.